it, that's the toughest part about readjusting into, you know, civilian society. It's like one minute you're overseas, everybody's trying to kill you. And then like the next you're home and everybody's so aloof because these wars have been going on forever. They're like, oh my gosh, did you hear it's pumpkin spice latte season? And you're like, cool. An excerpt from today's guest, whose latest book has been called An Enthralling Plunge Down the Rabbit Hole of the Global War on Terror. Iraq and Afghanistan combat veteran and author Benjamin Sledge is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Born in the Spear. Welcome back. Today's guest is a wounded special operations combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He is the recipient of the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. His latest book is Where Cowards Go to Die, and author Benjamin Sledge joins us now. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, you have an incredible book out here, but do you have a, a legacy of military service in your family? Yeah, my uh, it, it's crazy. This is actually in the book, too. Um, we've traced it as far back as a general under Napoleon as uh, how far back we go. Wow. <laughs> so we it, it's it's pretty wild. My my grandfather was a paratrooper in World War Two with 82nd Airborne. And then ironically, when I went, ended up in Afghanistan, I was um, underneath the 3504th Blue Devils before they disbanded of the 82nd Airborne. So it's uh, it's funny that I have such a long history in the military and we kind of joke and just say it runs in the blood. So as far as I know, my great grandfather, uh, he fought in World War One. My grandfather fought in World War II. I know we fought in the Civil War and like our house was divided. Some people fought for the Union. Some people fought for the South. Um, on the sledge side, I think it was the South. On, on the other side, it was like the North. <laughs> so yeah. then um, we didn't have anybody in Vietnam, but my great uncle, Charlie Applin Sledge, he stormed the beaches in the Pacific during World War II. And then my grandfather also served, my other grandfather, paternal side, he served in World War II. My uncles enlisted in the military, didn't deploy to Vietnam. My uncle got shot in the arm in a hunting accident, so he ended up getting out of the military. My dad tried to enlist in the Air Force. He had asthma as a kid. They disbarred him. And then me and my brother joined, and we expect that someday probably our kids will, we'll, and we'll have no idea why. Yeah, following your footsteps. Mm-hmm. I did so, sort of similar to you tracing back my history on um, Ancestry.com. My uh, father passed away. He didn't serve in the military, but he passed away when I was four. So I wanted to know more about his family. And I was able to trace his side of the family back to uh, to service in the Civil War and the Revolutionary War. Mm. My, uh, my great-grandfather uh, served at Gettysburg and Fredericksburg. Wow. My fifth great-grandfather served under Washington at Lexington and Concord, Jonas Child. So it's, huh. it's really cool to check back, you know, and discover these things. Yeah, it's wild. Everyone asks me if I'm related to Eugene Bondurant Sledge, who wrote With right. the Old Breed, which is considered like one of the greatest. Sure. Um you know, marine memoirs of all time turned into the Pacific. And I got an ancestry and I was like, I don't, and it led me down this rabbit hole. And I was like, I, I would have to hire some genealogist to figure this out. I have no idea. 
but the sledges are all from the south so and my family is all from like tennessee alabama area so i was like oh. yeah this makes sense but who, so who knows might be yeah that is an incredible book and uh, i i wasn't going to ask you that because i didn't assume from reading your notes that that was the case but uh, you know i do know that book what drove you with your combat experience and, and your current well your service what drove you to write such a personal book? Uh, were there demons or was it just something that you had to do? It, it was both. Um, I didn't talk about war for probably a decade. When I got home from Afghanistan, um, I, I wanted to be one of those veterans who talked about my experience. And, and I suddenly discovered why other veterans and combat veterans don't. And when you've been involved in kind of moral quagmires and, and questionable situations and circumstances that involve death and gore, you do things to kind of stay sane in those environments. You know, you'll have the gallows humor, as many first responders do. You'll laugh about things that you probably shouldn't. And I remember I began to tell these stories and people would do the uncomfortable shift um, or they would smile and I could tell it was totally fake and, and their body language and demeanor just kind of communicated. There's something wrong with you. You're a monster. And so I just stopped. I was like, okay, this is something we just don't talk about. And my grandfather, he never talked about his experience in world war two, except for like some, a few funny stories where he was like general Patton's scotch supplier. And, uh, there's a whole story in the book behind that. But for me, um, I, I didn't, write or talk about it until one day close to Memorial Day, I, I wrote a piece for Medium, medium.com. And it, it, it went mega viral. It hit like over half a million views very quickly. And I was just like, what on earth is going on here? And, and I wrote about the situations and circumstances that we face on the battlefield, whether it's, you know, having to decide whether to shoot a woman or child or coming home to a country that no longer feels like home. And I, I couldn't figure out the emotions that I was feeling because it didn't feel like post-traumatic stress. It felt like getting punched in the soul. And I discovered there was a term for it called moral injury, where that's where you have to do things that violate your sense of right and wrong, and you incur psychological damage because of it. So I wrote, I wrote this one, one-off article about my time overseas, and it just blew up. And my editor at Medium, I asked her, uh, and I acknowledge her in the things. I said, hey, what do you guys want to hear about? She said, oh, man, we love your stuff about war. That was a really good article. You should write more on that. I was like, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, that's the travesty. And I said, why? Um, and, and she's, you know, she's a, uh, an African-American woman. And um, she said, you're the smallest minority in the United States. Do you realize that? I said, what do you mean? She said, less than 1% of you have fought in the longest running wars in the history of the United States. You come home, you don't talk about it. We're losing all these stories of the complexity, the humanity, and the barbarity of combat that we need to hear to understand you all, and, you, and yet you alienate yourselves. And she said, and we're left in the dark. And she said, and that's the travesty. And it really shook me up. And I was like, man, I, I think I need to tell these stories. Yeah. And a buddy of mine who is in Iraq had begun just kind of chronicling uh, his own experience. He wasn't a writer. He just put together like a WordPress blog. And he was like, I just want my kids to know what happened before like my memory gets bad or I get old. And I was like, that's, that's actually really powerful. And 
um, what really drove me to write the book is the fact that everything that I've read in the Iraq and Afghan war genres is, is somewhat broken or incomplete. A lot of it's about the jingoistic heroics that, uh, you know, where it's like, I'm an awesome, I'm an, or I'm a Navy SEAL. That's the joke in the industry right now. You're a Navy SEAL, you get a book deal. Um, (laughs) And so we- I've interviewed Navy SEALs, as a matter of fact. (laughs) And I, trust me, I got a lot of friends who are, and and they're great guys, but I mean, it's just, it's the joke going around. But we- I just, I felt like it didn't explain the portions where I didn't look like the good guy. It was more like the movie Fury with uh, Brad Pitt and uh, Shia LaBeouf, where you're not sure if the Americans are sometimes the good guys. And, yeah. and that was, that was my experience. That was a lot of our experiences where we were just having to do questionable stuff and there were hijinks and craziness. And it's, it wasn't the softer, kinder, gentler army. It was wartime army. Right. So just kind of anything went. And I was like, man, and I had talked to so many other veterans and other people that had served, and they just felt like our story was not being told. And so I wanted to flip that script and uh, have it have it encapsulate what we really deal with, everything from the moral, the existential, um, the physical, the emotional, and even the spiritual. And, and I really went took that direction because of a book I read by Carl Marlantis, who's a Vietnam veteran, called What It's Like to Go to War. And he talked about how war is actually a very spiritual place and that, and I agreed and it kind of shook me to my core. So I I wanted to flip the narrative. So that's why I wrote it. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, author and retired U.S. Marine Major Fred Galvin will be here to discuss his new book, A Few Bad Men, the true story of U.S. Marines ambushed in Afghanistan and betrayed in America. On the day I retired, Rob, I had this hit article out on me. It said, you know, Fred Galvin, you know, retires. He's in charge of the task force that killed 19 and wounded 50. And that's when I started to fight back. I fought for 11 years to have the Freedom of Information Act request approved. Now it is, and all this information is in one source. Uh, you just see and read these accounts one after another where these senior officers betrayed their own, you know, troops and they fall on their sword. They generally explain what happened. And you're just like, I can't believe not only that this happened in the way that they said, but that these guys got away with that level of betrayal and lying and being caught lying on the stand. And what happened? They all got promoted. A powerful program you won't want to miss. Summer is a great time for catching up on military history. And my book about the seven Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II is out now. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book or audiobook, which is available now in stores and online. Now back to the conversation. Do you recall your first sort of uh, soul-shaking experience in combat? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was kind of funny. Um, I, I, there's, there's two incidences really. The first was when I arrived in Oregon, Afghanistan, and we started getting shelled and, you know, I'm in a bunker and there's just literally nothing you can do. And just like EB Sledge kind of talks about, it's just kind of this invention from hell where it just kind of terrifies the mind because 
you know, bullets are surgical, but you don't know a lot of times where um, artillery is going to land and then like what it does to the body and the way it shreds and it might take off a limb or you have a sucking chest wound or shrapnel peppered everywhere. And that just, that really tortures the mind. And so for me, that, that kind of became like that first experience where it rattled me. Um, the second one was when I started seeing dead bodies and uh, after firefights and stuff, this special forces team had gotten to a skirmish like shortly up the, the road from us. And there was this, I'll never forget it, this dude um, in a blue Toyota Hilux who had been killed and he looked like he looked like a drunk who had fallen out of his his seat um and was like half in the car and half out and his kind of guts are spilling out of the seat and entrails has a hole through his head and i remember I had to snap a photo for a report and i was just like okay this is this is death and you know it, they'd been out there in the sun a little bit so there's a stench and there, there's a very distinct smell to death um, and it's, it's kind of like knockoff CK one cologne dabbed on like rotting meat. It's like this sickly, sweet, disgustingness. And that, that was the moment where things started to really shift for me. And I was like, man, that, okay, we're in combat. This is life and death. And then you just kind of grow accustomed and it's weird. You don't want to die, but you just kind of become accustomed to the fact that you just might die today. Yeah. And it's a very strange and awkward place to be at but you kind of normalize it and you, then you begin to laugh about the stuff that you see as far as death and destruction um to kind of keep your mind from that trauma yeah it's, it's hard to imagine for people i'm sure but I'm, i i would imagine that all petty concerns kind of go by the wayside when you integrate <laughs> and that, yeah mm -hmm. it, that's the toughest part about readjusting into you know, civilian society, it's like one minute you're overseas, everybody's trying to kill you. And then like the next you're home and everybody's so aloof because these wars have been going on forever. They're like, oh my gosh, did you hear it? Pumpkin spice latte season. And you're like, cool. And then the, this scene in the movie, The Hurt Locker really nails it um, for all the absurdity of as far as like how they portrayed the Iraq war. Um, they nailed the ending where Jeremy Renner comes back home and he's just looking dead eyed at uh, all the options at uh, the supermarket for cereal. And I remember I went to a Chinese buffet and just stood there for like 20 minutes. And I was like, what do I eat? Cause I was so used to like, okay, today's an MRE or it's these sea rats or whatever. Um, and it was just, it was paralyzing. It, it overwhelmed the senses. Yeah, that, that was uh, my next question is uh, you came back and had to readjust to society and that, that's, kind of your introduction it's it's overwhelming uh, the variety in the supermarket and the variety everywhere and the petty concerns back in civilian life but uh you adjusted obviously but then you made a decision to return um, to yeah. active service what what drove that um you know, when I came back, it was okay for a little bit. And then it just, things started bugging me. And, and that's when everything kicked up. And then I became kind of the, you know, the violent, scary veteran who just, you know, when you got into the booze, you never knew who was going to come out. And um, this went on for, for a while until my friends and family had like an intervention with me. Once I had kicked in the door of my girlfriend's house, um, you know, just drunk and going crazy and I got in with a really good counselor 
who really helped me navigate my emotions and what I felt. Um, I, I downplayed a lot of my experiences because I was afraid that it would get back to, you know, the military or that, you know, as this wacko or whatever. And that's kind of the, the thing in the military is mental health is an oxymoron. Yeah. So I just, I kept that real quiet and real under wraps, but it got me into kind of a, a decent space after, you know, a year and learn the tools necessary to kind of catch myself when I was slipping, but I still didn't feel like I belonged because, you know, life is just going on. Everybody's going on. And I'm, I'm thinking about there's a war going on and my best friend had been killed while I was overseas. Uh, he had replaced me. And so there was just kind of this like, man, we got to finish this thing. Yeah. And I swore I would never go back overseas again because it, it messed me up. But um, one day, you know, my team sergeant, he's he's in the book as well. His name's Paul Gonzo Gonzalez. That's his real name. He <laughs> uh, he's like, hey, man, we're putting together a team and we're going to Iraq and you're coming with me. And I was like, no, hell no. And we had all these like post 9-11 newbie privates and people that hadn't served. And he just literally told me, he said, hey, man if you want to, he said, sooner or later, you're going to go overseas. He's like, these wars aren't ending anytime soon. He's like, if you want to get stacked with a bunch of turds and get yourself killed, be my guest. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, all right, man, give me the rest of the day. And other friends from Afghanistan were gone. And there's this joke. Um, it's not even a joke. It's, it's just something that your parents tell you as a kid. It's like, if all your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you do it? I'm sure oh, yeah. you remember that. <laughs> oh yeah. And, uh, the problem with the military is the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the dumbest thing that they ask you to do. You're like, if you served in combat with them, you're like, I'm in. Okay, <laughs> cool. And so I just jumped off that bridge with them and I volunteered. I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll go. I, I, I didn't even have to go. They were just putting together this special team. And, uh, by the end of the day, I'd signed on, picked my team. And, uh, and, and the thing was, is I had really found myself missing war because again, I missed the simplicity, the camaraderie, the brotherhood. Um, you know, I, I didn't have to worry about dating or entertaining my girlfriend or any of that stuff uh, or money. It was just a mission and some purpose. And that's what you lose when you come home, you list that uh, lose that sense of mission and purpose. And, uh, and so I was like, man, I can find that once more. And so I went, what was your role when you returned to service? Uh, so I was the platoon sergeant for a four man, it's called a cat a, uh, which stands for civil affairs team alpha. And we worked with the local and, and indigenous populations, rebuilding the infrastructure, but also at the same time, you know, minimizing civilian interference on the battlefield. So I like to tell people you get to see the best of war and the, war and the worst of war. You're either going to make a lot of friends or you get shot at a lot. So we, we went in there and we're the cultural experts and advisors, but we got sent to Ramadi during the surge from mm -hmm. 2006 to 2007. And that's where, you know, Chris Kyle earned his nickname, the devil, uh, Jocko Willink and Task Force Bruiser were there. Uh, the Battle of Ramadi was just kind of like the epicenter of hell. And and we'll probably go down in like modern history kind of as similar to like the Battle of the Bulge, just because it was a war of attrition for a real long time until we retook the city through um, some, some civil military operations that uh, a guy named Captain Travis 
Patrick Quinn put together, who was their civil affairs liaison for for the head of the first armor division, who really understood the mission and how to flip the the local tribal warlords and sheikhs. And it worked. Um, and we were able to implement that. And it became kind of the strategy for all of the Iraq war and coin because we took the most violent city and then flipped it to one of the most pacified cities. Yeah, it was recognized as a great success. Mm-hmm. Now, you served in Afghanistan as well. And Correct. over the last you know, a couple of years, we witnessed the withdrawal this nation made uh, from that nation. What we, I'm sure it was mixed emotions, but what, what were your initial thoughts when you saw everything unfolding? Uh, that was a, a gut punch. You know, it's weird when Iraq, when we lost Ramadi to ISIS, um, it, it didn't bug me as much. I think because of the fact that I was wounded over there. And I lost my best friend Hmm. and knew other guys that died. It just, for me, it really, it's like a punch to the face. Um, And all of a sudden, you know, me and my buddies are calling each other. I'm up wandering my house at three in the morning. Uh, I haven't done that in years. My wife just is like, you are a crazy person right now. It just, it, it threw me for this crazy loop. Yeah. And you know, I'm an equal opportunity offender as far as like politics in the book. Um, and I was like, God, the Biden administration just botched this. And then, but then on top of that, we're, we're talking about 20 years of, of multiple presidents who just com- had a complete inability to figure out what the hell we were doing there and just continued to botch it. And we had like all these lives lost and they just continually sold it as you know, lipstick on a pig, like one minute, it's like about the war on drugs, you know, it's like, oh, we got to shut down these poppy fields and the Silk Road leading into Pakistan. And the next they're like, we found commodities in the mountains. And so we can make Afghanistan rich. Honestly, they should turn it into a ski resort if they could ever stop the terrorism. That, but <laughs> the mountains are incredible there. Uh, you'd hit a bunch of landmines so they'd have to clear it all out. But uh, that that would be my suggestion for it. But anyway, um, it it really threw a ton of us for a loop. And I got back in counseling after that. I was like, man, this is not a good spot for me to be living in. And my wife and kids could tell that, you know, something was up. Um, And I, 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 for me, you know, I, like I said, I think it was just the fact that um, while Ramadi was like deeply personal and there, it was crazy. Um, we called it the meat grinder. Um, you know, Afghanistan was where my best friend was killed. And I, you know, I had blood spilt over there of my own and I'm just, I don't know. It, uh, it, it messed me up. And, and I was mad. I was really mad because of the fact that everybody suddenly remembers the war and you have these service members who die and, you know, you go to the bar and you see them setting out the, the deals. And I was like, what about those of us that fought for 20 years? Right. You stole our youth. There was no draft. You made us basically institutionalized. And now we all have mental health issues. Come on. And, and it was only then that they kind of seemed to care. But also at the same time, I was like, man, I can't be mad, you know, at the populace. This is what we fight for. So Um, we fight for them to be aloof about all this stuff and to enjoy their day-to-day freedoms and go to Starbucks and yell at their baristas. So, um, and so that's, that's really kind of where it came down to. It was just a a hodgepodge of conflicting emotions. But one of my buddies, he was a a pilot for the air force in Vietnam and we would eat dinner every Sunday before I moved to, to Colorado. 
for over a decade. I just texted him one morning, like one in the morning. He was up too. And I said, now I know how you feel like after Vietnam. And he just put, yeah, you do. So. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. I'm actually doing a Vietnam war project right now, a film on Vietnam. And, uh, it's, uh, it's a war where their service men and women need to be honored. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, and hopefully in the coming years, people who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, get this, the honor they deserve and instead of just, thank you very much. Well, on to the next war. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. But you return back home and uh, you've you've really done some good work. Are you involved with uh, veterans organizations and um Talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah. So um, after I got out of the military, I went to work in geopolitical intelligence, just based on my background, um, you know, with what I was doing. And that was a, that was a ton of fun. And I loved it. Um, but I also saw that that we were combat veterans. We were rapidly, you know, dying by suicide. We were taking mm-hmm. ourselves out of the equation. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted to get back and, and talk about like, and help us with this mental health stuff. And so I helped uh, a guy named Jake Lores. He's better known as the lead singer of a Grammy-nominated metalcore band called August Burns Red, build a uh, nonprofit foundation dealing with mental health from the ground up. And we had a lot of success, uh, but I, I kept, you know, the veteran side of me and the military side of me separate. I just figured we, we could kind of cast a broad net. And then later, we ended up uh, starting a veterans initiative and working with other entities and organizations. Um, And so I I did that for uh, about two years and then just realized, you know, it it was time for me to launch out on my own. My time was getting capitalized by writing a book, uh, writing. Uh, I had clients that wanted, you know, everyone was doing the side hustle thing. And we, I guess we all still kind of do it. Um, who, who wanted, you know, articles written because they had seen my writing. And then, you know, I was, I've been a creative director and graphic designer for most of my life and realized I could kind of piece this all together, but also at the same time with my skill sets and certifications in mental health, continue to impact veterans and give keynote speeches and train and educate, um, a civilian populace, at, that, that wants to help and, and yet doesn't know how. So one of the, the things that I'll specifically do is I went to Colorado State University's first responder and military. It's like this master's program and they're, they're yeah. helping with mental health now. So they brought me in. And uh, so I trained them on like, here are the, the struggles that we're facing. Here are the issues. Um, here's how you can help. Um, I'm doing the same thing. I've done this multiple times with Volunteers of America who deal with a lot of homeless veterans, uh, and then also, you know, mental health struggles that, that they see from the, the veteran side. And so I, I've att- done multiple trainings with them. I'm doing another one on Thursday, uh, you know, at no cost to the, to the organization. Um, and then I'll, there, there are other veteran organizations that I work with and support. One of my favorite ones right now is uh, Heroes and Horses, Oh. They do everything from equine therapy. It's run by a former Navy SEAL named Micah Fink. And they've just had 
phenomenal success rate. It's a 40 day rehabilitative program out, out in the mountains of Bozeman, Montana. My wife and I believe in the mission so much. We personally give to it every month. Uh, and then, you know, my, the old organization I work for heart support, they're continuing their veteran stuff. So it, I just have a lot of hands in different cookie jars right now. Um, but I, I would say my big thing is, is helping out train and equip um, the civilian populace and then also dealing with the struggles that veterans face and helping them find that mission purpose direction and meaning again and then directing them to the appropriate organizations that I know that are doing really good work because right now there are 50,000 veteran nonprofits out there so like which one do you pick and we've yeah. spent 92 billion since 2012 helping veterans you'd think we'd be better by now and so what I've realized is we don't need you know, more help, what we need is just better, more targeted help. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. That's good. You know, I interviewed uh, last November, Richard Casper, who's the director of uh, Create Events based in Nashville. You may have heard of them. They do some phenomenal work as well. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being on the show today. The book is called Where Cowards Go to Die. And I encourage everyone to pick it up. Thank you, sir, for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. You know, I was, I was looking through everything that you were doing and the filmmaking and directing, and it's it's really cool to see. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a long climb, and uh, <laughs> you know, not an overnight success. But uh, I enjoy what I do, and uh, I really respect people like you. Obviously, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for, I mean, just telling our stories and capturing them. I think those are are really important. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, author and retired U.S. Marine Major Fred Galvin will be here to discuss his new book, A Few Bad Men, the true story of U.S. Marines ambushed in Afghanistan and betrayed in America. On the day I retired, Rob, I had this hit article out on me. It said, you know, Fred Galvin, you know, retires. He's in charge of the task force that killed 19 and wounded 50. And that's when I started to fight back. I fought for 11 years to have the Freedom of Information Act request approved. Now it is, and all this information is in one source. Uh, you just see and read these accounts, one after another, where these senior officers betrayed their own you know, troops and they fall on their sword. They generally explain what happened. And you're just like, I can't believe, not only that this happened in the way that they said, but that these guys got away with that level of betrayal and lying and being caught lying on the stand. And what happened? They all got promoted. A powerful program you won't want to miss. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from Audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.